This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30, which is found on page 10 of your service guide. Please stand for the reading of God's word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Great to be back with you again. Uh, great to see lots of familiar faces and just be with um, a beloved body. So excited to get into God's word together. Um, let me just pray briefly, um, and then we will we'll jump in. <clears throat> Lord, would you please just guide our hearts <clears throat> this morning, guide us into your word, guide us uh, to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see you and receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So if you want something of the, the tentpole summary of this passage, uh, let me just give you a few key verses that, that really will guide you through Jesus' flow in this chapter in Matthew 11. <clears throat> so if you, if you want to understand what Jesus is getting at, uh, Mark verse 6 first, uh, where he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Then Mark verse 15, where he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Then Mark, uh, the end of verse 19, where he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And then finally, Mark 28 and 29, where he says, come to me, where he says, take my yoke upon you, where he says, you'll find rest for your soul. So that's, that's kind of the high level tent poles of this passage. Um, so kind of keep that in mind as we, as we jump into what we're going to see this morning. So this, this chapter presents us with a pretty straightforward question. The question that this chapter puts in front of you is, what will you do when you encounter Jesus? It assumes that a real encounter with Jesus, something will be difficult for you. He won't won't be quite what you expected. He'll teach things that you don't quite understand or maybe even don't like. He'll call you to things, to act in a certain way, to not act in a certain way um, that doesn't come easily to you. Or he'll, he'll just put his finger on things in your life that you kind of wish he'd just ignore. So this might be an initial encounter, right? It might be an initial encounter when you're encountering Jesus for the first time, or it might be the thousandth encounter um, as you're encountering Jesus in the midst of the normal life of discipleship, you know, reading a passage you've read a dozen times or hearing a sermon from a preacher that you've heard a dozen times already. Um, But when Jesus shows up in your life, when he surprises you, or bothers you, or contradicts you, or when he encounters you through his word, or the preaching of his word, what will you do? Will you reject it? 
Will you avoid it? Will you do that thing where you kind of piously approve of it? You know, you kind of go, mmm, yeah, that's convicting, but then do nothing about it? Or will you follow him? Will you receive him as he is? So for all of us, the life of following Jesus involves uncomfortable encounters. So what will you do in those moments? Will you be offended by him, or will you come to him and take up his yoke? So this chapter basically culminates in verses 25 through 30, uh, so we'll, we'll zoom in there and spend kind of the bulk of our time, or at least the majority of our time there. Uh, so while the first 24 verses kind of set up that invitation, lead up to the, those final verses that we just heard read. Um, so so in, in, in this, the first 24 verses, what Jesus is doing is setting up this contrast between two groups of people that in verse 25 he describes as the wise and understanding on the one hand um, and the children on the other. So this, this chapter uses John the Baptist as an example of the little children, and we'll, we'll see that in a little bit, and the crowds, or this generation, as the wise and understanding. So, so right off the bat, we should, we should probably note um, that Jesus uses these two labels, the, the wise on the one hand, the children on the other, not in a literal sense, but kind of in a, in a figurative, and almost, especially with the wise, almost in a sarcastic sense. So, for instance, if John is this example of the little children, we should note that John's actually older than Jesus. So, so he's not talking about age or anything like that. <clears throat> but the, the children are called that because they have the, the lowliness and the humility of childlikeness to receive Jesus as he is, even when, like John, they're surprised or confused or initially even put off by Jesus and his teaching. The, the key there is, is what Jesus says to John in verse 6, blessed are those who are not offended by me. The, so the point isn't that these children just kind of intuitively embrace everything, intuitively get everything, that they never have any issues, never have any problems. That's, that's not the point that he's getting at, but rather that they're willing to have their views corrected by the real Jesus that they're correct, willing to be corrected in their beliefs about Jesus, in their doctrine, in their lifestyle, and their behavior. But the wise and understanding, on the other hand, they, they aren't just those who you know, kind of have a good head on their shoulders, but rather they're, they're what the book of Proverbs calls those who are wise in their own eyes. They, they, they have their preconceived beliefs about God and about what Christ must be like and about how they can and should live. But when Jesus contradicts them, when he tries to correct them, they choose their own insight and wisdom rather than what God has revealed about himself in Christ. So the, the little children are those marked with lowliness and a willingness to receive Jesus as he is, but the wise are marked with pride and self-satisfaction. So when, when your beliefs, what you think to be true, right, and good, and Jesus find themselves at odds, find themselves contradicting each other, the child revises their beliefs, but the wise and understanding revise Jesus. So we see this in, in John the Baptist in verses 2 through 6. So let, let me just kind of read, uh, skim through that a little bit. Look at, look at verses 2 through 6 to see John's story. We see that John's in prison, and then in verse 3 he says, he sends his boys to Jesus to ask, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? So he has some kind of a doubt there. And then, then Jesus answers him and he says, go, basically go tell John what you've seen. Tell him about these miracles. Tell him about the blind. Tell him about the lepers who are cleansed, the deaf who are hearing, the dead who are raised, the poor who are hearing the good news preached. So, so he, John's having this doubt, having this difficulty, 
Um, and, and, I, and I think this is, this is super helpful for us in a lot of reasons, but in, but in one sense, <clears throat> what I find really helpful about this is that the text, <clears throat> the text leaves John's story pretty open-ended in the sense that we don't even really see what John's issue is. The text doesn't say, well, John thought this, but was confused, and so he asked Jesus. It just says he, he had a question. He wasn't sure if Jesus really is the Christ or not. Um, and, and we don't even see John's response. Um, doesn't give us his, his response. It's, it's as if the text puts the question to you. If, when you find yourself in John's situation, whatever John's real issue might have been, whatever your issue is, what will you do? What will you do? So some, some think that John's issues had something to do with Jesus and politics. They, they say that, that John likely had a, an expectation of the Christ that involves some kind of a military resistance to Rome, resulting in you know, Christ throwing off Rome and freeing the, the Jewish people. Um, so, so they think that John you know, saw Christ preaching repentance and faith and doing exactly zero army building. And he's a little bit confused. He, he thought Jesus would be doing more you know, engagement in politics. So, so for him, his perspective of what the Christ would be like and would do would have to be revised. <clears throat> and I think that's, that's entirely a, a plausible thing to, to think about John um, and, and certainly has a, a certain relevance to, to our day and age. But, but I, I just really appreciate the way that Matthew leaves it open-ended. What was, what was John's issue? Doesn't really matter. What's, what's your issue? So, and then to answer John's concern, Jesus points to his works. Basically, he's, he's referencing and pointing out the way that he's fulfilling some Old Testament expectations of, of what would be happening when the Messiah comes. When the Christ comes, this is what you're going to expect. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing, aren't I? So, so he answers John's questions. John says, are you, really, are you really the Christ? And Jesus says, yes, yes, I am. You can look at specifically Isaiah 35, uh, verses 5 through 6, if you want to look into that a little bit more. So, so after this chapter, the next thing that we hear about John is that he ends up getting executed in prison. So, so this little story, this doubt, um, and this question is the end of the story for John. But j- just for the sake of, of, of clarity, even though we don't see a resolution to John's questions based on what Jesus says next about him, especially in verses 7 through 15, where basically he says John's the best person who's ever lived, um, we really have, have no reason to, to think that John responded in any other way than, than receiving Jesus as he is. So, so the picture is this. John had a certain expectation, right? a certain belief about who the Christ must be, what must be true about Jesus and God and life. But then Jesus shows up and, and in some significant ways contradicts John's expectations. And John raises this question. He says, I expected this. I got this. Is this what, what's going on? And Jesus answers those questions. Jesus, he, he gets answers. And so John revises those expectations. He recognizes, I must have been wrong. This is the real Christ. And embraces him as the Christ. So, so this, this is the picture of the little children, those who have ears to hear, those to whom the Father reveals himself. So on the other hand, we get the crowds in verses 16 through 19, who, who also have a certain expectation of the Christ. They have some kind of an expectation but instead of revising their expectation in light of who Jesus actually is, they reject him. They reject him. So, so what, what, uh, what makes this so condemning is that Jesus points out that for these people, these, these crowds, 
The problem isn't even that they have some definite expectation, but rather that they just don't want to embrace a messenger from God in the first place. So, so let me read just verses 16 through 19 <clears throat> to tease that out a little bit. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like little children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So so the point of this little image of the kids in the marketplace in verses 16 through 17 it's basically that, you know, these, there's some kids that they're, you know, waiting for mom and dad to finish up their shopping or whatever they're doing. And so some kid brings his flute along, and so he starts playing a happy song. And they want to play a game of, you know, pretend celebration. They're going to play pretend wedding or pretend feast or whatever it is. They're just, they're playing a happy song. They're all dancing and singing. Um, and so, you know, a lot, most of the kids are going along with it. Everyone's playing, having a good time. But then, you know, the guy with the flute looks over and sees Mr. Pouty. Right, Mr. Pouty in the corner who, who isn't playing along. He doesn't want to play that, that, you know, the happy game. So you ask him, what's the problem? He says, I don't want to play happy game. So he says, that's fine. We can play funeral. That's another good game, too. That's what a, that's what a dirge is. That's what a dirge is. It's a, it's a sad song. It's a mourning song. That's why they're, you know, they're playing the dirge. And all the kids, they start pretending they're at a funeral. They start weeping and, and, and moaning and you know, um, <clears throat> pretending they're at a funeral. It's a weird game, but that's what they're into. And yet, so they're playing this game. They look over at Mr. Pouty, and all of a sudden, he's still sitting there crossing his arms, and, and, and he just still doesn't want to play. And, and so what Jesus is saying is that these people are like that. These people are like that. They, they, they have this expectation, this objection. Well, I don't, I don't like this game. And so they say, great, we'll do the other game. And he says, I, I still don't like it. I still don't want to play. Their problem isn't really the objection. The problem isn't the game that the flute guy is playing. The problem is that they don't want to play along in the first place. They want to lead the game. They don't want to be told what game they're playing. They want to be in charge. This is what Jesus points out when he compares his ministry to John's in verses 18 and 19. He points out that basically John was too severe. John was too stern. He preached a message of stern self-denial, of repentance and faith, of ordering your life right in preparation for the Messiah. And the crowds didn't like that. It was too intense, too much. But then Jesus comes along, and he's not stern enough for them. He associates with sinners. He preaches the grace and mercy of God. He preaches the acceptance of God through Christ. And he's not severe enough. Basically, he's, he's putting his finger on the fact that the individual presenting issue, too severe, not severe enough, isn't the real issue. The problem isn't the fact that Jesus teaches that he's the only way to God. The issue isn't really the fact that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. The issue isn't really the fact that Jesus says you have sin and guilt that requires the mediation of Jesus to give you peace with God. It's not really about the fact that Jesus defines marriage as a union between one man and one woman for life. The issue isn't always the issue. The problem isn't John's sternness. The problem isn't Jesus' graciousness. The issue is autonomy. Jesus doesn't take votes. Jesus doesn't even do opinion polls. He tells you what's true and good and beautiful. He tells you what God is like. He tells you what you need. He tells you how to live your life. If that is a non-starter for you, if that is a deal breaker for you, then the details don't matter. 
Jesus' first claim is that he is the son of God and therefore has every right to define your life. The issue isn't the issue. The issue is autonomy. Will you embrace Jesus as he is or will you revise him? This is what Jesus is getting at with, with a couple of those pithy statements throughout this passage. In 15, when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everyone can hear Jesus. But are you willing to receive him, to embrace him for what he says? In verse 19, when he says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Basically, he's saying that if you were really wise, if you understood the limitations of human wisdom, you would be willing to embrace the wisdom of God for both faith and practice. Faith isn't ultimately about what you know or don't know, about what you understand or don't understand. What faith boils down to ultimately is a willingness to hear, to believe, and to follow Jesus as he is, to bow your soul before God as he really is. So he, he drives us home with his woes to the unrepentant cities in verses 20 through 24. Just uh, let your eyes fall through that. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. I tell you, it'll be better for them than for you on the day of judgment. He goes on like that. What he's saying is, you saw me do all those things that I just told John about the healings, the miracles, and you still just kind of shrug. They are the opposite of John. John had doubts, he got answers, and he embraced Jesus. These cities have doubts, they got answers, and they reject him. They reject Jesus not because they don't have enough evidence, but because they don't want to yield themselves to him. They don't want to surrender their autonomy. So in our day, it's not exactly the same scenario. Jesus isn't walking around working miracles. There aren't apostles doing miracles. But a similar scenario is the person, is the person who, who has, has you know, such and such an intellectual issue, but then you know, comes across a thoughtful Christian and actually has that, has that objection addressed, gets a, gets a decent answer. But instead of acknowledging that fact, instead of acknowledging the fact that that difficulty got answered, because they'll, they'll bring it up the next time they talk to a Christian, they just pivot to some other objection. The issue isn't the issue. The issue is autonomy. And the point isn't that there aren't any legitimate difficulties, that there don't need to be conversations and issues addressed. That's not what I'm trying to say. Or that there are issues that might trip you up. But the point is, what will you do when your difficulties do get addressed? So, so this, is, this is important, of course, when we think about surrendering to Christ on the front end. We think about conversion, coming to Jesus. But this also applies to those who have accepted Christ, who are walking with Christ. Conversion, or coming to Christ, is, is one big laying down your autonomy. But growth in godliness and following Christ also requires a thousand little self-denials. You never really get beyond the allure of autonomy. So this, this brings us back up to verses 25 and 26. God reveals himself to the little children. This, this matters to us because the question isn't, what will you do if God confronts you and brings you up short? The question is, what will you do when he does? What will you do when you encounter God and find him to be much more than you bargained for? 
more grand and imposing, more mysterious, more profound, more pure and holy, more gracious and patient than you know what to do with, more gentle and lowly, what will you do then? If we're, if we're looking into God, looking into the, the, the ocean of God, and we think that we see the bottom, we're not looking at God. If we imagine that, that Jesus has no words of correction for us, we're not listening to Jesus. If we think that the, the life that, God, that Jesus calls us to isn't contrary to our flesh and doesn't require self-denial, it's not the way of the cross that we're walking so, so hopefully you, you see that this, this need for lowliness in the face of the mystery and holiness of Jesus, hopefully you can see that this isn't just important for the initial response. Lowliness and self-denial never really stop being important for the Christian. So will, will you be offended by Jesus or, or, or will you have ears to hear? For the first time, but also today and tomorrow and the next day, will you have ears to hear? So look at, look at verse 27. This is, this is fascinating. Oh, this is great. So just look at, look at verse 27. I love this. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is fascinating. So what's so great about this is that Jesus here is putting his message in the most difficult light possible. So far, his basic message in this chapter has been, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Blessed are those who are willing to embrace me and my message, even in spite of the things they might find difficult or offensive. Then he turns around and lays out the single most offensive part of his message. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. And by the way, I'm equal with God. Jesus doesn't just come preaching a message of reconciliation. He isn't just preaching repentance and faith. That, that message is as old as Elijah. That message is through the entire Bible. But Jesus takes it up a level and claims to be so much more than a messenger from God. He claims to be the very son of God himself. In fact, this, this claim, this verse, this claim is the reason that the Jewish leaders had him crucified. Everything else they could take in stride, but claiming to be equal with God is what got him killed. And blessed are those who are not offended by him. So, so how, how does he make this claim? How, how do I see this? So first, uh, remember back in verse 25 that Jesus prayed to the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then notice in verse 27 that he says that the Father has handed all things over to himself. He's saying that he has the same lordship as the Father. The Father is Lord of all things. And so is the son. He's equal in authority. Second, notice the last thing he says in this verse. The son chooses to whom the father is revealed. And yet in verse 26, Jesus says it's the father's gracious will who chooses to whom to reveal himself. So the son and the father have shared an equal sovereignty in salvation in Revelation. But third, notice the big one. Notice the biggie. So, so here Jesus is, is kind of playing on an attribute or, or a characteristic of God that could be called God's incomprehensibility. So basically, to comprehend something is to grasp it fully, to know it inside and out, to totally wrap your mind around it. Basically, the idea is we can't do that with God. Because he's infinite and uncreated, us limited creatures 
just can't grasp him. Not completely. He's always higher than we can climb, always deeper than we can dig. We can know him truly, but just not comprehensively. So what Jesus is doing here is basically saying that he is something that only God can really comprehend and that he can comprehend God. He's saying creatures cannot comprehend the Father, but the Son comprehends the Father. And creatures, limited, created things, can't comprehend the Son. Only the Father can comprehend the Son. Do you see what he's doing there? He's taking himself out of the category of the creature and putting himself into the category of the Creator. So in sum, in this, in this little verse, Jesus claims to share the authority of the Father, to share the sovereignty and salvation with the Father, and to share the same infinite, incomprehensible, uncreated nature as the Father. In short, he claims to be God, while, interestingly, emphasizing distinction between Father and Son. So this is tremendously important to understand just in its, in its own right. But for what he's doing here in this passage, in this chapter, this is just fascinating. <clears throat> He's basically saying in this chapter, remember, it's really important that you not be offended by me. And then he turns around and says, oh, and here's the most offensive thing I could tell you about myself. What a strategy. So so first off, I think it's easy for us to forget just how offensive that claim is. After 2,000 years of exposure to Jesus' message, the fact that he claims to be God has kind of lost its shock value for us. Whether we believe it or not, the claim itself... doesn't shock us as much anymore, but to Jesus' audience, this is one shocking claim. He he isn't just claiming to be a prophet or a wise man, but he's claiming to be God himself. So so in their eyes, there's, there's of course, just the plain hubris, the arrogance of such a claim, as as in who do you think you are to make that kind of claim? But there's also the more theological problem that a man claiming to be God poses. God doesn't have a body. God can't be represented by creatures. That's what the second commandment, no idols, is all about. God doesn't have parents. God doesn't have a hometown. God doesn't eat. God doesn't sleep. For a man to claim to be God is to reduce God to a kind of pagan demigod kind of a thing. So on the one hand, there's the who do you think you are offense. But on the other, the how dare you diminish God to the status of a creature kind of problem. That's why they killed him. And frankly, wrestling with those issues, figuring out how to talk about the incarnation without denying the humanity of Christ or devolving into pagan mythology occupied the next 500 years of theological controversy for the church. So so why is this significant? Why does he bring this up here? What's he doing here? He's basically doing the opposite of what we could call the seeker-sensitive strategy. And, and, And not because he likes offending people. Not because he really, um, but, but because he really loves his listeners. A seeker-sensitive strategy would try to present Jesus in the least offensive way possible. What do people want to hear? How can Jesus address your felt needs? How does Jesus' message line up with cultural values and desires? Now, in the, in the right time and place, in moderation, that could be a fine strategy. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But all I'm trying to point out here is that that's just not what Jesus is doing right now. <clears throat> See, Jesus isn't trying to just get a big following, but neither is he trying to offend people. And he certainly wants everyone to embrace him and his message, but he wants his followers to be bought in. He wants his followers to know what they're getting into up front. He doesn't want to woo you in with the easy stuff, only to hit you with the hard things later. The world is too enticing to soft sell the gospel. The flesh is too stubborn 
to give you a flimsy invitation. The devil is too ferocious for you to think this is going to be an easy journey. So the idea is that if you can embrace the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, then everything else will be a smaller hurdle. No matter what he says about himself, about ethics and religion, about sin and godliness, or about your lifestyle, if you've embraced the fact that he really is the Son of God, then you have what you need to embrace his message on everything else too. It might not be easy, it might be uncomfortable, but if he's God, then he's right about everything else too. So by, by jumping to this hurdle, he's clarifying that when he says, blessed are those who are not offended by me, he isn't saying it's really important that I don't offend you, but he is saying it's really important that you don't get offended by Jesus. So, so that isn't to say that, that preachers and evangelists should take this as a license to be gruff with people in either topic or tone, but it is to say that if you are offended by Jesus or something he teaches or something he's asking you to do or lay down, you must find a way to lay it down. So Jesus doesn't start with the hard stuff because he likes to ruffle feathers, but he starts with the hard stuff because you have to come to terms with it eventually. And in his incredible love for you, he wants you to come to terms with it sooner rather than later. If you're offended by Jesus and his message, he's not going to change it. He's not going to change his mind. If you will know peace with God, freedom from your sin and guilt, you have to find a way to not be offended. So in a sense, he's addressing the hard stuff up front so he can build a sturdy foundation for the invitation in verses 28 through 30. So here he he turns to those who who are still hanging around, who are still listening, and he says, if that doesn't turn you away, then come to me, take up my yoke, believe in me, and follow me. So these, these three these three verses, in a very visceral, kind of earthy way, gets at basically the, the two sides of the call that Jesus gives to all of us. There's a call to come to him and a call to take up his yoke. That's the same as saying there's a call to repent and believe and a call to follow. Or there's a call to faith and a call to godliness. Or, to get more technical, there's an invitation to justification and an invitation to the path of sanctification. So really, these, are, these two sides always belong together. There's something like two sides of the same coin. All true faith results in following Jesus. All true godliness is rooted in faith. So you can't really separate the two in practice. It's an all or nothing kind of an invitation. So, so what can we learn from this? So first, notice the word come. Notice that Jesus says come. Faith isn't just an assent to certain truth claims. It's not just believing that God exists. The life of faith is a life actively oriented around the person, work, and word of Jesus. To come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is to give yourself over to him as Lord, as mediator between you and God, as shepherd, as bread of life, as living water. So next, notice in the next verse where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So a yoke if you're not familiar with it, is a, basically a big piece of wood that's used to, in, in, in um, old school farming to connect a pair of animals together to pull some kind of a load, usually a cart or a plow. Basically, it connects an animal to some kind of a load and makes them receptive to the instructions of the farmer. So the idea is that under the farmer's yoke, the animals obey the farmer and the farmer takes care of the animals. The animals do what the farmer says and the farmer gives the animals what they need. 
In this time, in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders and teachers would have referred to the law of Moses, most of the Old Testament, as a yoke. And sometimes becoming a student of any given teacher would be referred to as taking the yoke of of teacher so-and-so. Basically, the idea is that the yoke of Moses or the yoke of Rabbi so-and-so is meant to be a symbol of discipleship, a symbol of commitment to learn how to live a good and God-pleasing life, expecting the law to give you the things you need for life and godliness. When Jesus invites us to take his yoke, he's inviting us to come out from under the yoke of the law and to become his disciple, his student. And there's a kind of mutual responsibility in view on Jesus' side in offering us his yoke. He offers to be for us what the law could never be. He takes responsibility to justify us before God. He takes responsibility for those under his yoke. And on our side, we take responsibility to learn from him, to be responsive to him, to learn to live the life that's good and pleasing to God. He says, I will take care of you, and you will learn from me. So what can we make of this yoke? What does he say that following him is like? What should we expect? Honestly, after, after the last verse, it wouldn't be too surprising to find something here that emphasizes the difficulty of the yoke, wouldn't it? Something parallel to when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He's describing the same kind of thing, the same thing. But that's not what we get. That's not what we get. Here he emphasizes the incredible gentleness of his yoke. What a breath of fresh air. He he wants you to know the difficult stuff up front. But he's no drill sergeant. There are hard things about following Jesus, but he doesn't want to emphasize that at the expense of losing the sight, losing sight of his goodness, the richness, the rest and peace that is following Jesus. He is gentle, so he doesn't respond to our failures with harsh and extreme correction, but only what's required to help us learn. But also he's, he's gentle in what he teaches us. So the law, as just kind of a, a body of truth, tends to just expose all of our sins and failures at once. It just gives us one big snapshot of all the ways that we fall short. But that's not how Jesus teaches his people. The law just heaps the burden of perfect righteousness on you on day one, but what Jesus will do is simply ask you to take the next step, to make progress without getting discouraged, to grow in righteousness without getting crushed. The same goal, but the process is so very different. He's lowly too. To him, there's no end of patience. To teaching new Christians how to walk isn't beneath him. So, so how does this apply to you? What, what, is, what does it look like for you to take up the yoke of Jesus? Let me give you just one general application and suggest, suggest just a few smaller steps that, that, that you might be able to take. So in general, taking up the yoke of Jesus, discipleship to Jesus, uh, looks like joining a church and putting yourself under the word of God. That's coming to Sunday worship, hearing sermons, reading the Bible on your own, learning how to pray. For many of you, that's, that's already your life. The takeaway for you might be, how how can I double down on those things? How can I embrace it more fully? How can I go a little bit deeper? How can I expose myself more fully to the word and the will of God? Maybe in the big picture, you are taking the yoke of Jesus. Where might there be small areas in your life or some more significant areas in your life where you are not? But for some here, that does mean you need to find a church to join. Maybe you've been coming here for a while but haven't committed yet. 
haven't actually joined in fellowship. Maybe you're still searching for a church. What you need to do is find a church that as a whole receives God's word as it is and seeks to live it out. A church that values God's wisdom over man's, whether it's man's modern wisdom or man's kind of just traditional wisdom. What matters is God's word, not man's wisdom. Discipleship is not done in isolation. You need brothers and sisters to walk alongside of you, and you need pastors to watch over your soul. That's what they're there for. So at a more specific level, think about lowliness, childlikeness. What does this require of you as a follower of Christ? What does this invite you into? Think about how lowliness might impact doctrine. How are you domesticating God? How might you be reducing him to a more human scale? Or think about your life. Lowliness can be quick to confess sin. Do you regularly confess your sin to God, even just alone in prayer? As a Christian, you should assume that he will forgive quickly, but we're still told to confess, not just to presume. Or taking it to the next level, lowliness before God means you can be quick to apologize to those around you. Does your husband know what it looks like for you, knows what it sounds like to hear you say, I'm sorry? Does your wife, do your children, do your employees? Those who claim the cross confess that they are prone to sin. You have no reason to deny what you've already confessed in your baptism. Do you think people will be surprised to find out that you're a sinner? They shouldn't be. Are you surprised when you remember that you're a sinner? Why? So how is Jesus pressing you today? How is he confronting you today? What's he asking you to lay down? Or maybe the thing that you're rejecting or revising about Jesus is his grace, his lowliness, the rest he offers you. Sometimes, in a twisted way, we kind of like the law. Sometimes we want the law to give us a little beating. Sometimes we don't trust the grace of God. Maybe it's just too good to be true. But Jesus says he is gentle and lowly. He says he will give you rest. Will you receive him as he is? Will you be offended by Jesus, or will you have ears to hear? Will you receive him like a little child, or will you reject him as one wise in your own eyes? Will you come to him and take up his yoke? May the Lord bless you by his spirit and build you up by his word. Let's pray.